We would like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello and welcome to I Used to Play Piano, the monthly podcast for people who want more music in their lives. I'm Joanna. And I'm Zara. And welcome to today's episode. This month, we're going to take a look at the avant-garde with a piece from the French composer Eric Satie. Eric Satie. Eric Satie. Our pronunciation is only going to get worse as the show goes on. Excuse our Australianness. We'll be full bogan by the end. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Satie, mate. <laughs> All right, what else are we going to talk about today, Zara? Well, we're also going to be talking a bit about the dreaded performance anxiety. Oh dear, yes, how it's plagued many of us. Yeah, and we're going to talk about it because I had a big bout of it this month. Yeah, that was really interesting, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, first, though, how was your month in music, Zara? Oh, my month's been fantastic, Joanna. So much music everywhere. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I might even say too much music. <laughs> Can there ever be such a thing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been doing um, some really cool collaborations at the moment with the band that I play in, Musical Journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, we're doing a bit of a collaboration with the Footscray Community Choir, oh, who cool. are an amazing little choir out in Footscray run by some mates of ours and so we've been doing some open rehearsals and we've got another couple coming up as well um, on Saturday the 9th of June and also Saturday the 16th of June. And where are they taking place? That's at the Body Voice Studio in Footscray and we can pop some more details up about that on our website as well, website on our Facebook page. One day, (laughs) you know, that one. Um, And we're also doing a performance on June 30th which I think is at Carolyn Chisholm College in Braybrook, but I'm we'll check the address of that because I have no idea what it is. <laughs> but that's on Saturday, 30th of June as well. So cool. we've been learning how to sing, which has been really fun, and we've been teaching them some of our songs. So it's been really cool. Nice. Yeah. That'll be fun. Um, I also got to see um, Archie Roach and the Titters perform, which was amazing. Nice. Um, and, yeah, super cool. At, that was at Hamer Hall. Mm-hmm. And they also were supported by um, this Mission Song project, which is it, it's these amazing Aboriginal women who've gone around and um, discuss, they've gone and searched for old mission songs that were sung on the missions back in the day by their um, elders. Mm-hmm. And their songs were just incredible and they, they were able to explain the meaning and the significance of all of those songs and how a lot of it came from church music because that's what they were learning on the missions but then they had their own culture coming through and it was just beautiful that's so cool is there anywhere um is there stuff on youtube or something that we can have a look at yeah there is there um jesse lloyd who i think started the project um and friends will be doing a jam session actually which is really cool and so they're inviting people um to come and celebrate the history of their Indigenous community and they'll be singing songs from their album The Songs Back Home mm. and many more. Ooh. And that's going to be at the Recital Centre in Melbourne on Saturday, July the 7th oh, wow. at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So it'll be a sing-along and, yeah, from what I saw from the concert that they did already, it's just amazing. Yeah, so, that yeah, sounds like really, really cool. lots of fun. Yeah, 100%. We can post information about that on our Facebook too yeah, cool. for anyone that's interested. Let's do it. Oh, so you had a pretty full-on month in music. So much music, yeah. <laughs> what have you been up to? I um, went and saw a couple of things. So I went and saw um, a Japanese pianist called Yo Kosuje play at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Uh, she is so good. Her, I've, uh, her lightness of touch on the piano was insane. She had a really mixed um, repertoire as well. She played really early sort of um, Scalati sonatas and Haydn and a bit of Beethoven. She did the Waldstein, Waldstein Beethoven sonata, which is epic. And then she sort of went into the sort of more romantic, impressionistic um, repertoire with a bit of Ravel and uh, Liszt, um, which was just 
equally as beautiful. She's actually got a project which you can follow on her website where she's trying to record all of Beethoven's repertoire for piano. Oh my god! And she set it up <laughs> wow. so that yeah, I know she's done. She's doing quite well. She set it up so that um, it's like a starry sky, and that's the stars change color every time she's recorded that. Um, oh wow! That piece, yeah, that's really cool. It's quite good. Um, it's yeah. worth taking a look at. Um, so it's Yu Kosuje. Um, definitely check it out. And I also went and saw the opening night of Opera Australia's Tosca. Oh, wow. Which was really, really good. Beautiful. Um, those sets are phenomenal and the singers were just insane. Um, <laughs> I always get worried baritone. when people talk about the sets first because it's kind of that thing, you know, <laughs> if the performance wasn't very good, but you can say, oh, the sets. No, no, <laughs> it was just equally as good. It was just one of those things like the curtains went up and it was just um, jaw-dropping. Dro- jaw it was insane. I couldn't wow. believe it. And then, yeah, there's just some some great, great, great singers Diego Torre and um oh, I can't remember the name of the band. We should really there. write these down. I feel really awful that I've forgotten half of the information <laughs> of things that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> um yeah. No, um the person who played Scarpia, the villain of the opera, was yeah. just phenomenal. Seriously scary, but great. What really, is really Tosca good. about? Oscar is about this painter, Cavara Dossi, who helps hide an escaped prisoner from the fascist police. Um, when he's sort of talking to this prisoner, his lover, Tosca, overhears him and becomes really jealous. So um, the chief of police, Scarpia, knows that she's quite famous for being jealous and so he uses that to, to find out information or to try and find out um, if the painter has indeed been hyping this, helping um, this escaped prisoner. So he he ends up ends up arresting the painter on suspicion and um, tortures him in with um, Tosca there to sort of um, make him make her um, relent and sort of give him the information that he needs. So he makes a deal with her, Scarpia, the chief of police, to um, spend one night of fashion with her, and he'll release uh, the painter Cavaradossi. Before she agrees to it, she says sort of gives him some conditions do we need a spoiler alert <laughs> maybe spoiler, spoiler alert, alert spoiler alert <laughs> if you don't want to know skip forward 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> and so um yeah so she gives him conditions that he has to plan their escape and they won't get harmed and she'll she'll basically sleep with him but um she doesn't believe him and um he he, he gives her these these conditions and then before he gets a chance, she basically stabs him and kills him. <laughs> and then they try and escape, but it all goes wrong anyway. It's worth a watch. Who'd have thought opera would be so dramatic? I hope that's a sarcastic comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's about, basically. Um, we love opera for this. Uh, yeah, so definitely worth a watch. It's a, it's a great production. Opera Australia do it really, really well. And, um, yeah, worth seeing if it's finished now for the season. But if you ever get the chance to see it again, yeah, even by cool. another opera company, um, do. It's a, it's a great opera. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So let's move on. Zara, you wanted to talk about performance anxiety. Why is this? You know what? I'm just getting anxiety talking about performance anxiety. Oh, wow. what's, <laughs> what's causing it? Well, I mean, I guess I wanted to talk about it because I had a really bad case of performance anxiety when we were recording the piece for this episode, the Sati. See, I wouldn't have picked that. Really? Yeah. You couldn't see me crying? <laughs> were you crying? I was trying not to. Oh, I was wow. Like, really? No. Yeah, Dan said at one point, he's like, I knew things were going downhill. He could tell. Wow. That's kind of nice. Yeah. That he knows. Yeah. Dan's my partner, by the way. He's, he's one of our soundmen as well. He's not just a creepy audio engineer. <laughs> <laughs> been too involved (laughs) in recording um yeah no it was full on and it was kind of the first time in recent years that I'd experienced that kind of anxiety too Mm. um I had a lot of performance anxiety and also just generalized anxiety as well um while I was doing my undergraduate um and I worked on it a lot at the time and I kind of thought I'd come through it and it was a thing of the past yeah however I guess during the recording process it felt like all the wheels started to fall off and it was just impossible to continue and to kind of explain what happened, I guess, like the whole, every time I would get through the entire piece and then get the last damn chord wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I noticed that, you know, and yeah. but I sort of put that down to like, you know, the more you record something, the worse it often gets. So you yeah, just got to yeah. take a moment to regroup. I didn't realize you were sort of I was so like struggling so internally. Was, yeah. Can you describe sort of what happens to you when... 
your your anxiety starts to creep up? Yeah, totally. I mean, like part of the reason I felt like it happened this time as well. I mean, recording is such a different yeah. ball game to performing as well. It really like, is. Because, you know, you you do it once and then they're like, do it again, yeah. you know, and you're like, well, I can't do it. And you, It's just, exhausting. You can't make a mistake in a recording, mm. you know, it's and uh, here we go. Like this is the anti antithesis of our whole purpose <laughs> of this podcast, isn't it? You know, that we don't want to force perfection, but then – you know, if you make a mistake when you're in a performance, it sounds better than on a recording. You know, there's ambience, people don't notice, you move on and it's never thought of again. Whereas yeah. in a recording, it's like, well, is that the best you could do? You know? Yeah. Um, and I guess I was also, I forgot I, I forgot the score. So I was reading off our other sound guy, Nick's iPad, mm-hmm. um, and it was a different version as well. So I couldn't really even read it very well. Um I guess, yeah, you just can't fudge your way through it no. when you're recording. And yeah. because I kept getting almost the whole way through and then would have a little slip up in the last couple of bars, the more I had to redo it, I started getting these really pervasive ne- negative thoughts in my head, that kind of inner monologue that's going, oh, that last chord didn't sound right. You left some notes out. You're not going to make it through to the end of this one. This is a write-off. Oh, You'll wow. have to do it again anyway. Um I was kind of, every time I got through a, a little phrase, I was like, okay, I got that done. Now I've just got to get through the next one. I've just got to get yeah. through the next one. Will this be it? I hope this is the last time I'm doing it. And it's just this, such an annoying inner monologue that just won't shut up. And yeah. I was thinking, I know you had to leave. <laughs> I was like, uh, oh, I'm wasting everyone's time. No. Yeah. It wow. was, I just knew I couldn't keep playing and I had to stop Yeah. at that point. And I actually, um, Dan and I ended up recording it at home a, a week later, actually, in and it the was end. better. Yeah, and also because Dan bought these fancy new mics too, so he wanted to try mm. them out, and that was a bit more fun. Does the fact that you had people like Nick and I there, sort of sitting, just listening as well, did that add to it? I don't know because I didn't. I feel it? pretty comfortable playing in front of you guys. Yeah, because Nick has done a lot of recording for me when I've had to do auditions and stuff like yeah. that, or for other things. So I'm pretty comfortable playing in front of him. Um, I mean. Dan would be the one I'm scared of most because he's actually like, and not a that Nick's not pianist. a Nick is a brilliant pianist too. <laughs> but like, what about me, Zara? And you too, you too. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But Dan's like he's a prodigy kid, yeah, you know. Bit, you know what it's like. So I I do get a bit brilliant. nervous playing in front of him, but then also it's comforting to know that someone that supports you is there. Yeah, I don't think it was so much that you guys were there. I think it was more the fact that I knew we were under time pressure. Okay. Yeah, and that um. Yeah, that I knew that I had to get it right and that it was just that kind of thing. Like every time I was going, I was like, ah, this is this is not good. I've got to stop. I'm going to have to do it again. Like it's yeah. that my mind's already jumping ahead in, and thinking of the worst case scenario rather than just going on. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was pretty bummed out because I thought that I'd dealt with all that anxiety. But I guess it's just a different type of performance now and mm. that I guess maybe I need to go back and look at some of the strategies that I've used in the past and see how I can adapt them to get through this kind of a thing. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. Well, I think um, what sort of – what did you use then and what do you think would work now? Um, I don't know. Like back in the day, my anxiety was so bad that I couldn't even get through a performance. Um, and I think some of that was tied up with my injury that, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about on the podcast before and just general low self-esteem and yeah. pretty neurotic. I worry about everything mm. all the time. <laughs> um, you know, like I kind of – just from a generalized anxiety thing, like I'll often have moments where I'll just obsess over something little, like maybe I said something in a conversation to someone and I thought maybe they misinterpreted or didn't understand me and I'll just sit there and stress over it and have this like sick feeling in my body yeah, for the right. rest of the day. Um, and that can be in itself quite debilitating. But when I was doing my undergrad, like I couldn't even play like just in front of my friends without kind of breaking down and either crying or just having to stop. And wow. it was pretty bad. Like, I don't know if you remember, maybe I didn't perform that much. No, I don't remember around. you performing yeah. that much. Yeah. Like I, I used to in first and second year and then by the time we got to the end, I just couldn't. Wow. And so I ended up going to see a psychologist actually, who was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a sports and performing arts psychologist who worked at the VCA, um, which isn't where we went, but um, it turns out she actually lived in the next street to me. So oh, we were neighbours. So it was really perfect. Um, she was amazing. Her name was Paulette Mifsud and she worked with like um, people who were 
Olympians and Commonwealth oh, Games wow. athletes and stuff like that. Like it's, you know, she's super and the dancers from VCA and wow, all these so musicians cool. and stuff. Like she's really, you know, world-class psychologist. Yeah. I mean, she, sh- she taught me heaps of really great techniques, um, lots of different things. So mm-hmm. we did some guided kind of meditation type stuff where I would kind of go into that. I don't know if anyone's ever done some meditation where you kind of go into that altered state of consciousness. So it's like that deep relaxation. Mm -hmm. And then in that, she would get me to have like this really strong visualization of the piece that I was playing. Yeah. So um, I would visualize myself and it was, the whole point was that it had to be really strong. Like you had to be hearing it, you had to be seeing it, feeling it, you know, all this kind of kinesthetic feeling in your body, visualizing it. And I think that was the thing that helped the most, Mm -hmm. which doesn't really help if I'm sight reading something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But she also taught me the importance of reframing those negative thoughts all the time, not just in performance, so Mm -hmm. that you kind of get into this pattern of positive self-talk. Yeah. Um, You know, every time you have a negative thought, just reframing it because it's not constructive and – yeah, that's yeah. something that plagued me at one stage too yeah, right. before I was getting ready for auditions. I think I was all sort of thinking about whether I wanted to do it and keep going with it and that sort of turned into negative, like you can't, you're not good enough to be able to do this, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that was, I, I often tried to counter that by a positive thought yeah. about my playing. So it would just sort of flip it and it worked. Yeah. And I think it's, we underestimate the power of that because yeah, you can definitely. kind of feel like you know that you're saying something that you don't necessarily believe, necessarily believe. Yeah. But if I think back to when I was in high school, because my mum, my mum's funny because she's really like a very kind of cold, logical person, not cold, but you know, <laughs> very logical kind of. Does your mum listen to this podcast? She does. <laughs> <laughs> no BS kind of person. But then she has this real hippie streak that, <laughs> you know, she, um, so when I was doing VCE, she made me write out like a bunch of positive affirmations and would make me recite them in the car whenever we were driving. That's everywhere. brilliant. Go <laughs> Zara's mum. Like she laminated them and stuck them around the house. Oh, I love that. That is so good. Yeah, but you know what? It really helped. Yeah. Because, you know, it just gets you in that, it focuses you, you know, and I think if you think of athletes, they're really good at that, you know, they're. They're doing all these things for their body. They're not eating junk food. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, they're, they're up exercising. They're getting up early and doing all that kind of stuff. I think because we're creatives, we don't necessarily do those really tangible yeah. things that are helpful for us. Yeah. But having something like that, you know, even just that positive self-talk and those affirmations and having your goals printed up so that you can see them because it can often feel like there's no end game in music. Yeah. You know, like when are you ever going to get this piece ready probably never I'll never be good enough at this yeah. piece and often yeah. you neglect other areas of your physical well-being that's true in order to yeah. keep you know practicing for hours at, at a time late into the night neglecting sleep not eating properly and these all have you know effects in your the the, uh, the rest of your um on your life and how you feel physically and will also affect your mental state of being as well. Absolutely. And I guess we just don't think about that stuff because we're sitting in a room. Yeah. We're not, we're not out there. Like we don't feel the physical effects yeah. of our playing until afterwards usually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So true. So I think that was something that's really helpful and maybe I haven't done that because I haven't felt like I'm in a performing space, but maybe it's something that I need to do just in general yeah. in my life. What would you recommend to someone who – experiences similar performance anxiety, how would they begin to sort of treat that? What would be the first thing to do? I think seek help would mm-hmm. be the first thing. I mean, Paulette was amazing. And unfortunately I can't refer her because she's really sadly passed away a couple oh, of years I'm from horrible cancer, yeah, ca- cancel, <laughs> horrible cancer. Mm. And it was really just awful. And I was fortunate enough to be able to visit her in the last couple of months as well. And even then she was still so passionate about people getting good healthy routines and yeah. um all this kind of stuff and I know she had a lot of projects in the works that hopefully might still come to play in the future and yeah. I'm connected with a, a group of people who I guess were all of her clients on Facebook um which she set up when she got sick and every now and then you see someone who's like this amazing athlete has gone and done something really cool and wow. just they post their successes and they post things that they've done to keep themselves on track and things like that. It's That's a really brilliant. great community. What a great legacy. Yeah, amazing. So, but find someone like her, I yeah. would say, because I think you can read all of these things and 
think that you're doing them. But I think because a lot of this stuff, like I said, like my mum used to make me do this when I was younger, Mm -hmm. but I don't think I was in a mental state to adopt it. Yeah. Or maybe I was kind of half, half assing it a bit. Yeah, or you, you were know. just doing what you needed to to get by at the time and yeah. you didn't sort of adopt them Sometimes long-term. you need – and you, you, I think musicians can relate to this in terms of going and getting a lesson yeah. as well. Like sometimes you just need to go to your teacher and get them to tell you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a wake-up call when you you can tell yourself all this stuff but until someone else tells you what to do yeah, or repeats it back to you, it's kind of like you don't – Yeah. Yeah, just having that – and, you know, in music therapy we have supervision as well for these reasons. You know, I think going and – talking to someone about it and having someone who's not you um, give a perspective, you know, and even just sometimes having someone that can be like, yeah, I get it, you know, or that's okay, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Or no, you just deal with it, like get get yourself together. But just having someone that's not, I think, a friend or a family member can be really helpful as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think also like, yeah, being – treating yourself like you're an athlete yeah, I think the parallels between athletes and musicians and performers are really strong and we don't acknowledge them as much yeah. as we should. I mean, one thing, another thing that Paulette taught me was the importance of routines and rituals. So, you know, planning out on the day of the performance, what am I going to be thinking on the car drive there? Yeah. You know, what am I going to be thinking as I walk into the warm-up room? What am I thinking as I walk onto the stage? Yeah. And she also taught me how to juggle for some reason. <laughs> I wrote that down. Well, why I did she teach you to juggle? I think it was something about focusing and just right. focusing your mind. I think that's funny. I, I I wasn't very good at it, and I'm pretty impressed that I didn't break anything in her office. <laughs> I'm funny. not the most coordinated person. I've never been able to juggle. <laughs> it's too yeah. much. It's funny. You can play two hands sometimes, two lines in one hand, and pedals, but you can't sort of do something as simple, or you think as simple, simple as, as juggling. juggling. It's a different. I think it requires a different amount of depth perception. Maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's what it is, yeah. That's a yeah, good point. It's funny. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I guess if you're experiencing performance anxiety and that may have led to you losing touch with music a little bit or, you know, it just – it's something that you feel like you need to deal with, seek out help and um, – Yeah, I totally recommend it. I think there's a big stigma around – performance anxiety and a really big stigma around in general just seeking help but I think therapy is awesome yeah you know any chance you get to go to therapy even if there's you know not not much wrong it's great you know couples therapy whatever (laughs) you know I think just being able to go and talk to someone else about your problems is really valuable I think definitely says the therapist yes (laughs) promoting therapy yeah um but I think it's it's something that we kind of don't acknowledge enough Mm. in the classical world, especially, you know, you think, um, I think there's still this big stigma that if you're not going out and playing at your best, then you're not good enough. Yeah. And I, I think that value judgment is really damaging. And it is, I think we've heard from a few listeners actually, who've been really kind in sharing their stories with us when we've run into them or even over, um, Facebook or our email, um, a lot of people have been saying that, yeah, they, they've kind of got to this stage in their life with, where their relationship with music is really complicated and yeah. it's not how it should be. And even if maybe that's not because of a performance anxiety thing, maybe because it's because of something else that's happened in your musical life. And, yeah. you know, if you can find a way to connect back and talk to other people about it, I think that's so know, such a positive yeah, thing. Definitely. Yeah, Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Sarah. No worries. And I think like maybe in the future, if there's anyone who's an expert on performance anxiety or Definitely who'd like to share their experiences and what helped, yeah, um, I think absolutely we'd love to hear from people and yeah. to talk about that stuff more because I think it's a big issue and it's a big, um, you know, something that can help everyone. Yeah. I think everyone experiences it, whether they, you know, even Dan. <laughs> Who's you know? <laughs> he's the benchmark <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, That's in terms cute. of like piano performance, like he can just sit down and do it. He sat down and played the sati, and I was like, "Damn it, <laughs> you just do it it's so much better." Just leave the room. Get out. <laughs> but um, yeah, like you know, everyone has performance anxiety, and some people are better at coping than others. Yeah. But we all have it, so why not talk about it? Yeah, it's yeah. true in one way or another. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, thanks for that. Um, um, feel free to email us in if you've got an experience that you'd like to share. We'd be happy to read things out on air if you don't want to mm. come on the show. Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or we can start a conversation on the Facebook page and have people share yeah, publicly absolutely. if you're keen. You know, I think it's the more we can get it out there and reduce that stigma, the better as well. Yeah, mm. definitely. Cool. Let's move on to Eric Satie. Eric Satie. Now, you sat down and uh, recorded his first... The gym, first gymnopathy. Yeah. I can never pronounce the <laughs> name of these pieces. What is a gymnopathy? Do you know? Uh, well, I'm not sure if anyone really knows. Okay. Is the... That's going to be my politically correct answer. Because <laughs> um, he used to call himself a gymnopathist. Right. He, he was really funny. Like, he didn't like to call himself a musician. And I think Satie had a really interesting and complex relationship with music as well. Like he said, he's not a musician. Um, I think initially he would call himself a gymnopodist, but then he also called himself later on in life. I, I hope I said this right. A phonometrician, phonometrician. Right. Something, what is that? Something, something to do with sounds? Measuring sound, I right. think. And so I think he, I mean, there's a lot of different, kind of theories on where it came from yeah so some people think that it comes from the greek word gym or like from gymnastic okay. type um origin um which means nudity right. because you know the ancient greeks apparently did the olympics and stuff all in the nude oh, yes of course yeah yeah um, and also maybe dance and because it does have this almost really slow waltz time to it as well and yeah. i think there might have been talk that sati mentioned that it would be about a dance. Mm -hmm. um, other people think it's related to this poem called Les Antiques um, mm -hmm. or The Ancients by um, a poet, Contamine, who mm -hmm. I think was a friend of, Deb of uh, not Debussy, of um, mm -hmm. Satie. Um, so it's not the same poem that we mentioned a few episodes ago about Debussy, but similar theme, which is kind of eerie, Yeah, um, The Ancients. Um, but this, the word gymnopity is in that poem. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of controversial whether Satie wrote the piece based on the poem or whether the poet wrote the poem for his friend, uh. um, particularly given that he used the name, yeah, right. um, the gymnopodist as well. <laughs> so interesting. Um, Maybe he wrote in the nude. <laughs> Let's not speculate on that, shall we? <laughs> he was a crazy man. That reminds Never me of a, um, a research method subject where we, were where we literally – had to speculate on the sexuality of the <laughs> composers. Do you oh, remember really? that? Yeah. No. Well, the the Schubert analyzing the Schubert <laughs> piano duets because the hands cross closely and, oh, and maybe it was some oh, sort of um, chance for secret lovers to come in close contact. <laughs> <laughs> Brush a hand over a hand. Yeah. Oh, oh they're desperate for um, contact back in the day. Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> I can't get the thought of Satsi composing <laughs> in the nude out of my head now. Thanks, Joanna. No problems. You Here know, all I, week. I honestly wouldn't put it past him because he was a very unusual character. Um, I had the best time researching this, by the way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I guess in terms of what is a gymnopathy, um, does it matter? It sounds nice. I think that's the main thing. It does sound nice. And it's, it's such a, a cool piece because it's, this piece is like one of, I think it's probably his most famous yeah. piece. And it's kind of on every classical relaxing music compilation. It is, isn't it? Easy it's listening like the first to classical musicians. On, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I do use it a lot in a music therapy setting as a relaxing piece as mm -hmm. well for relaxation, either playing it myself or um, playing a recording because it is such a gentle yeah. piece. Um, but then when I was playing it and – Re reading it I guess the harmonies in there are quite complex and unusual mm. and even the ending how it sh suddenly shifts from D major to D minor mm. with that final chord yeah is so weird yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's so effective does it prepare it for the next one no because the next one's in another key altogether mm, right I think it's in s some weird version of C right you know it's very jazzy like lots of almost it's tonal but Unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um Sati, I didn't realise how much of an influence he'd had on atonal music and on avant garde right. music actually. I think um because you can listen to this piece and think, Oh, it's just a lovely, lovely, gentle, relaxing piece, you don't realise how um rebellious and different he was. 
So Sati um, spent, he did go to the Paris Conservatoire, mm-hmm. um, which Debussy and all the others kind of went to. And, you know, you hear that they all won the Prix de Rome and things like that. Um, however, he didn't do very well there. Um, his piano professor at the conservatory described Sati's technique as, and I quote this, I think I got this from Wikipedia. So <laughs> <you> may, <laughs> hopefully it's right. Um, <laughs> insignificant and laborious. <laughs> right. <laughs> Quite, um, and worthless. And worthless. <laughs> uh, like great teachers. Way to put you down. Yeah. Way to inspire your students. But he, um, he got sent home really quickly after, um, being at the school. I think he only lasted a couple of years there. Oh, really? Yeah. And he went back much later in life. Um, I think when he was in his forties to finish his degree. In his forties? Yeah. Um, he, he spent most of his time at Le Chat Noir, Mm -hmm. the Black Cat Cafe, which, um, I'm sure most of you would have seen the poster, you know, the red and yellow poster with the black cat and the French writing. Um, which I also didn't realise is where Satsi hang, hung out. Mm. Um, and it was a bit of a cabaret place. So he would do lots of um, lots of different um, kind of performances and meet lots of different characters and stuff in yeah. there. And I think it really kind of was quite formative for him mm. um, in terms of being a bit of a rebel and not being in that, that yeah. school and that place. Um while he was at the school, though, and being called worthless and all this kind of stuff, he was actually, that's when he composed the Gymnophides as well. Right. Um, you know, which is, you know, one of the famous pieces in the world. So it's kind of like, don't take negative criticism too harshly, no. I think, is the lesson there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he went to back to school at the age of 40 and he eventually graduated. <laughs> so oh, good on him. It's never too late either for all of those Absolutely listeners who not. are picking up piano for the first time or getting back into it. Yeah. Um, so there's, I mean, there's so much to go into with Sati that we could really talk all day about him. <laughs> Should um, we have a listen to the um, recording you did? Yeah, absolutely. All right, here we go. So this is Zara performing Eric Sati's first gymnopathy. Thank you. 
Thanks, Sarah. That was that was so nice. That what a great recording. <laughs> well, I got through it in the end. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's <possible. laughs> I'm so so happy. Um, we ended up. Um, I should say we recorded that on my upright piano. We normally record oh, nice. on um, Dan's parents' grand piano, which yeah. is beautiful. Um, but it was kind of a blessing in disguise that I had this big meltdown, <laughs> a subtle meltdown apparently, because that recording, they were nice, but they're really harsh, the sound. Yeah. So we did, redid them on my upright, which is not in tune. It hasn't been tuned in a long time because <laughs> I'm neglectful. Um, but, and with these new mics, but the sound was so much warmer cause it's in my lounge room, which has all these big couches and things yeah, like that. Right. And the sound was much warmer, which I think really suited it a lot yeah, better in the end. Tough. Yeah. Um, so apparently you have come across some interesting facts about Eric Satie. Yeah. I mean, we can't really talk about Satie without talking about some of his personal quirks. Um, which is what we love about these composers. Yeah, I love it. So, and you know, that's kind of my, I felt like I didn't do very good, as good a job as you normally do on the research. <laughs> um, Tell us some of your favourites. So, um, he purchased seven identical grey velvet corduroy suits. Wow. And he wore them every day for 10 years. So, wow. he didn't wear anything else. The man was afraid of change. Afraid of change or was he making a statement? Maybe he was making a statement. Wasn't there like one of these breakfast hosts who wore the same suit on air? Oh, really? In every day for a year just to prove a point that, like, no one cared about what men wore. Little <laughs> <laughs> women anchors had to do stuff. I don't know who it was, but <laughs> maybe it was something like that. Well. Early feminism. I don't know. Um, he claimed that he only ever ate food that was white. I've read this. Yes, I think yes. that's probably the most well-known funny fact about him. Um, but then he also ate, like, huge amounts of weird things. So apparently he made an omelette using 30 eggs and would eat that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which is, I mean... Maybe he had really high cholesterol. Yeah, you'd think. <laughs> oh, eggs good for you? You eggs eat a lot, you get high cholesterol. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> Everything in moderation. <laughs> yeah. um, and he also apparently ate 150 oysters in one shot. What? <laughs> that's just nuts. Like That's disgusting. How? Oh, my word. He mustn't have had a gag reflex. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> horrible. <laughs> oh, God, this is just... This is a, um, oh, a very inappropriate episode. <laughs> Indeed. We should put a bit of a warning. <laughs> we should. Maybe we'll have to get in a, a M. You must be change our iTunes rating or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also founded his own religion. Really? Yeah. And Scientology. He, no, but he was the only member of that religion. <laughs> of course he was. What was the religion? Um, it was called... Um, uh, I'm going to try and say it in French, but my French is pretty bad. But Église Métropolitaine Date de Jésus Conducteur. That was probably horribly racist and in- inaccurate. I did study French quite a lot, but it's all gone out of my head now. So what as does you that can translate tell. to? The Metropolitan Church of Art of the Leading Christ. And he also composed a grand mass for this church. My word. One. I think he was originally really interested in occultism which um that sounds a little unusual but yeah. apparently back in the day a lot of people were really into the occult um if you think of the Romanovs and Rasputin mm-hmm. um I recently listened to a couple of great podcasts um on last podcast the last podcast on the left mm-hmm. who did a really interesting series on occultism um and Nazis and David Bowie right. and um, Rasputin and pretty much everyone was into the occult back then. I don't think it had the satanic connotations that it does nowadays, yeah. really. But he was kind of part of this um, mystical order um, of the Rose and the Cross. Of the, oh my gosh, these are so mouthy. I don't know. If I'm joining a cult, I'm joining a one-word cult. <laughs> this is too much. Funny. The mystical order of the Rose and the Cross of the Temple and Grail. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah who was a close friend of his, but they ended up having a falling out, which is why he then went on to start his own. So it was kind of like he had a fight with his mate and started his own religion as a result. So, yeah, really, really interesting kind of person. Um, Apparently he lived quite um, in a bit of a, you know, um, outer suburb, I guess, of Paris and would walk to and from his performances. Mm -hmm. Um, But apparently he used to carry around a hammer, um, which he said was for, self-protection. Oh, was it a rough area? I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of hard to tell with him. Um, and I think, you know, things started, he, he gained a bit of notoriety. Um, so 
I think maybe maybe he did need the protection because people, yeah, were, you know, if you're that unusual. Um, yes, that's true. How yeah. interesting. Yeah. Just carried around a hammer. Yeah. It's a heavy thing. It's so great. Um, there's something I do really want to post on our Facebook page as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and I didn't know this either. I'm just like shocked at my lack of knowledge on <laughs> Sati. Um, he composed a ballet. Oh, yeah. With, um, so, and it's, it's, I'd love to see this. I'd please, if anyone's listening and has any sort of influence in Melbourne, <laughs> please put this production on because it's amazing. Um, so the, I think the script or the, dialogue I don't know if there's any dialogue in it but the plot I guess was um written by Jean Cocteau Mm -hmm. um and it was composed for Diaghilev's Ballet Russes so Mm -hmm. Diaghilev the famous um dancer what's the dance choreographer like the conductor of dance (laughs) (laughs) okay um yeah I think he did the Rite of Spring as well yeah right don't quote me on that (laughs) um but yeah really famous and the sets were designed by Picasso oh wow that would have been yeah yeah oh actually no I just realized it wasn't composed by Diaghilev it was for his ballet russes which was the troupe yeah um of dancers it was choreographed by Massine who also danced in it um, but apparently it was crazy. Um, and I've seen clips of it being performed on YouTube. It's really cool. Really, oh, really cool. Look. It's got, um, you know, peop- people in these weird big costumes that look like they've walked straight out of a Picasso painting. And then that kind of almost creepy schoolgirl from The Shining type <laughs> dances as well. And it's really unusual dancing too. It's really cool. Um, what appa- the name of the ballet? Parade. Parade. So I'll definitely post um, a link to the YouTube yeah, do. footage of that because it's so cool. Um, but apparently it premier- it's premiere like many of the things that were going on at the time, apparently. <laughs> People just didn't have much time on their hands. <laughs> it caused a riot outside of the um, concert hall after wow. the premiere, which, you know, it, like I said, it happened a lot back then. So yeah, right. <laughs> maybe who knows. But um, apparently Sati and everyone involved in it were arrested and charged with cultural anarchy. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they, they spent time in jail for that, which is pretty full on, for composing insane. something that upset people. <laughs> so well, it's creating disorder in society. So I guess, maybe, yeah. Um, and you think now that we have a free speech problem, like, really, yeah, right. you can do anything these days. Um, How interesting. That is some really interesting stuff about Sati. Can I say one more thing? Yes, go for <laughs> I know we're going on for ages. This will be a long episode. Um, and I think I've done most of the talking as well. So apologies. And sorry for people who hate my voice too. Oh. But there's another really great piece, which we should do sometime, maybe mm. in a future episode, um, called Vexations by Sati, oh. which um, I think you know a bit about this one, Joanna. It was the instructions are that it needs to be played, I think it's 180 times in a row. And it's only about a no, two No, it's line. 840 times. 840? That's why oh my it gosh. Took I'm pretty sure it's 840 or something. Oh, my gosh. I'm dyslexic. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, numbers aren't my strong. 840. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they have to keep playing it. And it took about 19 hours to perform. They they had this tag team of players doing it. Coming in out, doing 20 minutes um, stints of it. Yeah, crazy. And so this was all organised by John Cage. in the 1960s. Yeah. John Cage, if you're not familiar, was a chance composer. So basically anything – so one of his pieces – the way that I was introduced to John Cage was in History of Music at uni and our then teacher, Craig DeWild, she's like, I'm just going to play you this piece called Four Minutes and 22 Seconds or whatever it is. Four Minutes 33. 33, <laughs> so I was close. Um, so just, just take a listen. And then he just sort of steps back from his lectern and then there's just like nothing – and it was basically, it was just four minutes and 33 seconds of nothing. And whatever happened to happen or whatever sound was created by people moving around, the birds outside, whatever, that was that was the music. Yes. That was the yeah. chance that happened. So this is, yeah. So and yeah, and Cage was really um, influenced by Sati as well, mm. which I also didn't know. Because again, only knowing the, the first gymnopathy really, mm. um, you only think of like pretty straight line normal music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they did this premiere in 1963 where they had, I can't remember how many performers they had, but they had heaps of performers playing and so much so that the New York times had to have, um, a tag team of critics so that they could have someone awake for each hour of it. So they were tag teaming it as well, which is hilarious. hilarious. And it must've been, um, you know, 
amazing and also terrifying. Um, so the other night when I was doing all this research, research for Sati, um, I started playing the Vexations tune. Um, there's some recordings on Spotify and YouTube. Mm. And I had it up and I was reading and reading about Sati and, you know, finding reading all these amazing articles. We should post some of them actually because some of these articles are really mm, um, cool. incredible about people who've done a lot of research and yeah. stuff like that. So we'll share some on the Facebook page too. Um, I didn't write them down, so unfortunately I can't acknowledge the authors here, but we'll definitely um, pop them on our Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so then I kind of needed to stop this and I went on to do some of my PhD work. You know, I'm in the process of doing a systematic review, which is <laughs> going through every bit of literature that exists that could possibly relate to my topic and yeah. scouring through it. And so I was probably about an hour and a half in on that. And I realized, because I had this really uneasy feeling and I wasn't feeling great and I was getting a little bit stressed, but also just felt really off. Yeah. And I realized that the vexations were still going <laughs> on my computer and I was still listening to it, but it it had gone into the back of my head. Appropriately <laughs> named vexations. Oh, it was, I was so eerie. And then when, once I became aware of it, I kind of freaked out. And I was like, how long have I been here for? How long have I been listening? And it was, the house was quiet. I was home alone and I could just hear this really, it's a really eerie tune as well. Yeah. <laughs> terrifying. Wow. So that was my um, my own little sati experience there this week. Go. Wow. Yeah. How interesting. Well, thank you so much for doing all the work and no, um, no. researching um, all these interesting things about Eric Satie. And also for your recor- recording. I'm so glad that we finally got to hear you play. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad that I finally did it. And, you know, it's been busy. And I did pick that piece because it is an easy piece. Mm. And, you know, it's easy to read and easy to learn. Yeah. Um, and I've been so busy. But it's actually kind of almost backfired in a way because it's so simple that it's you can't make any mistakes in it. Yeah. Like, you can't hide. It's too transparent. Yeah. No, but it was great and um, I enjoyed it. I hope all of you listening enjoyed it too. Thanks, Ioana. Um, Let's get on to the last it's segment. everyone's favourite time. <laughs> Scale of the month. <laughs> we keep forgetting that we made a real theme tune for it. Yes, we did. Scale okay. of the month. Bum, bum. <laughs> Okay, so, so this week we thought we'd do something a bit different and we'd get onto the grand scale. And can I say that this is foreshadowing a future episode in which Ioana talks all about scales? Yes, I will one day <laughs> tell you all the wonderful things about scales and why they're important. But for now, let's just play the grand scale. Now, I don't know if we've chosen a key and I haven't actually practiced it, so maybe I'll stick <laughs> with C major Okay, just because it's a little bit... Um, Ooh, that could be on. a false... Um, Lulling you into a false sense of security to see Maybe major E major. There. E major might be used. Oh, go, go with whatever you feel comfortable with, really. I'll go with E major. If I screw it up, then I'll change to C major. While, right, while Ioana is walking over to the piano, I will say that she and our sound man, Nick, got very excited over scales the other day when we were recording and talking. They were fangirling over the scales and saying, how good are scales? Am I playing so much better now that I'm doing scales? It does make a difference. Does it? Okay, well, let's hear it. So Ioana playing the grand scale in, I think she's on an E. Yep. <laughs> Yay! Well done. <laughs> That was full on. That can you explain to the listeners what a grand scale is? Because I imagine that not many other instruments would be able yeah, to do this. Right, I don't think so. <laughs> Basically, what it is is you start an octave apart as you would with both hands, and you go up two octaves, then you go into contrary motion. So, which is where plans, plans, hands go the opposite way from each other. Yep. So you and then. When you meet back in the middle, you go up another two octaves and come back down, then do the contrary motion again, then going down the last two octaves. Yeah. I remember hearing one of our friends at uni play it first for the first time, and I was just like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and she was just doing it amazingly. And you can do it with arpeggios as well. Was that Shani? Yeah. Shout out Shani. to Shani. And, you know, I was trying to do a little bit of um, research on the grand scale, at least. I couldn't find anything. But apparently it also then involves thirds and sixths. Ugh, no way. Yeah, it just gets <laughs> How? super duper intense. I have no like idea. Like playing one hand a third apart and doing that or playing double thirds and doing it? One hand apart with a, with a oh th- my gosh. third. Yeah. 
All right. That you can do that it. next week. Hell next no. <laughs> Hell no. I don't want my brain to explode. Anyway. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for tuning in um, this month, guys. It has been really good to um, talk a little bit about something different and to hear Zara play. Yay. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too horrible. Oh, no. I need to stop the negative self-talk. Yes. Yeah, stop the negative Thank self-talk. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, we've got some pretty exciting things coming up in the next couple of episodes. We so do. We, we have are guests. looking forward to <laughs> bringing you them. Please let us know what you think. Um, let us know if you want to share something about yourselves. Yeah, we love hearing. Let us know if you want to um, come on and talk about your own. Yeah, experience. feel free to come on and talk. We could do it over Skype, phone you in. Yeah. You can type up something and send it to us to read. Yes. You can even do an accent. Yes. <laughs> I'll practice my French accent. <laughs> but we'd love to hear your stories and hear about your experiences, if there's something that you relate to here. Um, we really want to foster this community of supportive music loving people yeah absolutely and we are still trying to organize a um open mic night so please do let us know if you're if you are interested in just playing something it can be as short as you want it can be a duet it can be anything so please do it let could us be know. four minutes 33 it could be four minutes or the abridged version two minutes 22 <laughs> <laughs> hilarious i didn't know an abridged version existed well you could have your own adaptation. one second <laughs> If um yeah, we'd we'd love to hear what you've got going on as well. If there's any gigs that you want us to plug, we're more than happy to. So please be in touch. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So until next month, this has been Zara and Joanna. And we used to play piano. <laughs> we still do though. We still do. We're trying. Yay. Have awesome. a great month. Bye. <laughs>